The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Your wish is my command. We have a treat for you today. Mike Palindrome is back with another solo episode, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, with special guest host Mike Palindrome, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. You know him, you love him, and maybe you will learn from him. He is a huge fan of David Foster Wallace, and he's going to tell you all about Wallace's magnum opus, Infinite Jest. I'm talking, of course, about our old friend, Mike Palindrome, who's here today to take over the show. We're throwing him the keys to the car. You might have thoughts about this afterwards. You might have questions. Well, you can send them to me if you want, but the faster way to get your response is probably to go straight to the source. Mike Palindrome is on Twitter at LiteratureSC. That stands for Literature Supporters Club, of which he is the president. So without further ado, let's take a quick break and then go straight to President Mike Palindrome and his take on Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hey listeners, Mike Palindrome here. Apologies for how long it's taken me to do this episode on Infinite Jest. Uh, 
like like anything you love, you want it to be perfect in the execution, perfect in the memory after the fact. But I can't do one, the 1,079-page, 388-footnote-filled infinite just, justice in a single podcast episode. So consider this yet another promise to do future episodes on DFW and Infinite Jest. I thought I'd start by reading little bits of the, the opening. Um, the chapter, first chapter is entitled Year of Glad. The, ch- the chapters have some headings. They also, you know, orient the reader by telling you uh, where you are in the timeline. The thing is, instead of years, every year has been subsidized and sold to advertisers. So their their name like Year of the Tux Medicated uh, Pad and Year of Glad. So it begins like this, Year of Glad. I am seated in an office surrounded by heads and bodies. My posture is consciously congruent to the shape of my hard chair. Um, so the narrator, Hal, is meeting with three deans, the dean of admissions, academic affairs, and athletic affairs at a university. He's in high school, and he's applying to this university and um, to get a tennis scho- and applying on a tennis scholarship and also on his stellar grades. And the narrator is taking them all in. And he says, The dean at left, a lean yellowish man, whose fixed smile nevertheless has an impermanent quality of something stamped into uncooperative material, is a personality type I've come lately to appreciate, the type who delays need of any response from me by relating my side of the story for me to me. And then he goes on to describe how the other dean, uh, the yellow administrator's usage is on the whole undistinguished, though I have to admit he's made himself understood. And so he's kind of condescending and assessing the intelligence of these deans and recognizing he's clearly above them, but he's still a kid. And so uh, he notes, my chest bumps like a dryer with shoes in it. And I th- I wanted to read that open because I think it's just such a good little sense of how um, he he's kind of stiff. Dave Foster Wallace is a little stiff. And he's very funny, but the humor comes at you at all different in all different ways, like a very erudite humor, a very slapstick humor, sometimes, a, you know, a juvenile humor. Um, I just think it, it just starts off with a little bit of David Foster Wallace's entire world, um, that opening. So I'm going to break this up into two halves. The first half, to those who haven't read it, and the second, to those who have. I mean, if you want to listen to the whole thing, go ahead. Like, you know, many books, novels I love, long novels, knowing what happens plot-wise is just a fraction of uh, the enjoyment. So uh, Infinite Jest is just one of the most rewarding books to read. There there are lulls and moments where you want to give up, and I actually have. It took me my third try to finish it. But the originality of the humor, the no-holds, what I consider to be like Shakespearean portraits of humanity, um, the inquiry into the nature of depression, as well as parenting, uh, great insights on how not to parent. 
and ultimately the the meaning of life i mean if i can be so grandiose like why write why work why talk to other people it's a stunning thing to read and be engaged by for you know for for however long it takes you to read it um i think once you finish it it really stays with you and you start to refer back to it when people speak or when you watch a movie or observe people from a distance um after i finished reading it i i ha- would have lunch uh we a uh, weekly lunch with a friend of mine a poet who is a serious reader of course and she remarked that almost anything she brought up i would bring up david foster wallace and say that reminded me of david foster wallace uh and infinite jest so like i was saying there you know it's a long book and there are flaws in the margins here and there i wrote as i do in in all the books i read i <clears throat> make little notes in pencil I actually wrote overwrought, boring, meh, who cares, leave the reader be. Um, I also found it was extremely helpful to read it with a friend. I would talk to her, compare notes. Um, All right, some basics. It was written in 1996. Uh, As I said, it's over a thousand pages long. You can't really hold it in one hand to read as you walk which is what I often like to do when I'm in a neighborhood I know well. Obviously, if I'm traveling overseas, I don't do that. Um, so I ended up actually tearing the book into fifths. The 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 main the body of the book I tore into fourths. The footnotes I kept separately. And at, depending on which part of the main book I was reading, I would um, use painter's tape and attach the footnotes to that part. So I was carrying around this like strange version of Infinite Jest taped with blue painter's tape. And I got a fair number of comments from people asking me like, oh, is there an abridged version? Um, so let's compare. Uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace is 1,300 pages. George Eliot's Middlemarch, 880. Uh, the Brothers Karamazov clocks in at 824. Now, th- you know, Infinite Jest is well short of Proust's remembrance of things past at 4,215. Robert Musil's uh, The Man Without Qualities at 1,744. And Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan Novels at 1,682. And of course, Nausgaard's 3,600. Um, and that, that kind of reminds me of how when I was 11, I used to keep track of how many pages I read each month. You know, there, there was like a baseball po- brain part of me that loved to add up the pages I read. Um, and I think that kind of childhood innocence, uh, silliness kind of, it, it is one of the themes that you start to see in Infinite Jest and how... St- I would, you know, the the book is all, is many things, but it's also a buildings roman, and the way Hal and his two brothers have left the the home nest and become functional people or not in society. Um, so astonishingly, Infinite Jest has sold over a million copies worldwide. Um, as you can guess, it takes its title from Hamlet, Act Five, Scene One. Uh, Hamlet 
is gesturing with the skull of a, a jester, Yorick, and says, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. And in response, Hamlet's friend Horatio chimes in, Yes, a fellow of infinite jest. So, David Foster Wallace's favorite writers, uh, you, you can clearly tell where Pynchon, DeLillo, also Updike, maybe to a lesser extent, uh, maybe the eye for detail, the extraneous detail. Uh, his closest writer friends were Jonathan Franzen, Jeffrey Eugenides, among others. So I mentioned the, that because needless to say, he was, he was very competitive. I mean, he... Uh, an infinite jest is a culmination of his Herculean efforts to be the capital G greatest of all time. There's um, a character in Infinite Jest, and her she is the pea goat, the prettiest girl of all time. Um, there's a lot of assessing where you are in the hierarchy, and some of it is parody, and some of it is not. Some of it is absolutely like. Where do you rank? And if you read, uh, I, I think I mentioned in the other David Foster Wallace podcast, this terrific short memoir that only covers the period of his life, um, is the, the early years and kind of the later years. D.T. Max's Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. Um, you can kind of, you can see how competitive he was and how it, it sort of ate at him. Um, yeah, it, he used to say, "Don't give your talent the finger." That there was some responsibility to genius, uh, which he believed he had. So, all right. So, for those of you who haven't read it, I wanted to go over what I, I see as at least are three or four different plots that come together. Um, and I think this is deftly handled. They, when you tire of one plot, the readers get shifted to another. And um, I've met readers who definitely have their favorites. So so the first one, first plot line is that the U.S., Canada, and Mexico have become a North American superstate known as Onan, a bit of a juvenile joke about Onanism. Um, so the Organization of North American Nations. Uh, so the U.S. president <clears throat> is um, Johnny Gentle. He's a f former country singer who ran on the platform of cleaning America, literally cleaning America, because there's the, America's biggest problem is the accumulation of garbage. So he, he ran on that platform. He's elected. And now he's going to solve the country's problem. Um, and what he does is he offers to give the garbage to Canada. Very, very nice gesture. Canada refuses. And so the U.S. starts to dump its garbage in Canada anyway. And the the garbage sinks into the ground and creates this huge garbage dump that's called the Great Concavity. That's what the U.S. calls it. <clears throat> and the U.S. then starts to complain <clears throat> because the southward winds are blowing the toxic smells back into the U.S. So the U.S. sets up these massive fans to blow the smells northward to Canada. Um, and then well, so one of my favorite moments in the book is uh, 
how some, uh, uh, you know, this, there's a Quebecois terrorist group and they're all in wheelchairs. They're all paralyzed from the waist down. You, you find out later why. And so they're trying to f commit, they, they commit these acts of terrorism to try to force the U.S. to allow Canada to secede from Onan. Um, and th they have this ingenious way of dealing with uh, the massive fans. I don't want to give that away. So um, the leader of the terrorist group, they're called Les Assassins de Fauteuil Roland, AFR. Uh, the leader is Remy Marte. And Remy is a quadruple agent. He He's only pretending to be a triple agent. Um, and he has been holding these secret meetings with uh, basically the equivalent of the Secret Service, of the U.S. Secret Service or the NSA or <clears throat> any secretive type group. And they're called the, it's called the Office of Unspecified Services. Um, he's meeting with this guy, Hugh Steeply, and Hugh Steeply and Marte, is it really Marte? Maybe Marath. Uh, Marath uh, become good friends, and they get to know each other, and Hugh Steeply cross-dresses, so he's not spotted by his fellow colleagues, but then he starts to enjoy cross-dressing. There's, there's all this stuff about how he's kind of heightening his level of cross-dressing, and and he finds out that Merath is only doing his, you know, quadruple crossing because he's trying to get medical care uh, that he can't get in Canada. And he can't get in the U.S. either, but he can only get if he is a government official um, for his wife who was born without a skull because of just the toxic poisoning, the environment in the U.S. and in Canada all caused by the U.S.'s garbage. Um, and Merath is trying to get a copy of this so-called video called The Infinite Jest to use it as the ultimate terrorist weapon. Um, and this is kind of Dave Foster Wallace said his most ridiculous. Um, the, the two of them, you know, are spies, but they have come to enjoy each other's company and they they kind of forget to keep up the spying you know they kind of and Marath kind of forgets how to be a quadruple agent because you know it's it's confusing enough to be a triple agent but um and they speak in this what they think is double entendre spy talk or triple entendre and um it's 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 hilarious. So, let's see. Marath um, Marath says, uh, um, "We both. It's simple. We both want the soup. So, me, my pleasure from eating the habitant soup au pois, pea soup, has the price of your pain at not eating soup when you badly crave it, and the reverse. If you are who eats the serving." So Merath is French, and his English is, is Stilton. And I, I think David Foster Wallace does a great job uh, with all the vernacular in this book. There's um, 
white trashy people and they're uh they're they're you know their english dialect there are um inner city youths and there are some drug dealers and he really captures all their vernacular there's of course the hal who's in high school and he attends a tennis academy and his buddies and the way they talk with each other talk to each other so this this is Murath. so he says and the reverse, if you are who eats the serving, by the USA genius for each, for each poursuivre le bonheur, then who can decide who may receive the soup? Steeply. Example's a bit oversimplified. We bid on the soup, maybe. We negotiate. Maybe we divide the soup. Um, and then they go on with the soup metaphor. And... Mereth is clearly enjoying it. Steeply gets frustrated and says, well, whose soup is it legally? Who who actually bought the soup? Uh, and I think, you know, the classic David Foster Wallace move, the conversation runs and runs, exhausts its logical progression, and then goes beyond it. Um, so... This plot line introduces you to the idea of this tape, the infinite jest. And you learn that, you know, it's a tape so entertaining. It's a video so entertaining that if you watch it, you stop doing anything. And you basically die of starvation and, you know, exhaustion because you keep your eyes open and you watch it. Um, so more on that later. So the second plot line is this elite tennis academy run by this couple, James and Avril Candenza. And they have three sons, Oren, Hal, and Mario. Hal is sort of the main character of the book. So they all three, Oren is older, went to the academy, um, graduated, gone off to college, graduated, and now is the Arizona Cardinals starting punter. Um, Hal and Mario are still at the academy so their father james is a bit of an amateur buff uh film buff and also a psychology buff a gadgetry buff um he kills himself by rigging a microwave to turn on even though the door is not fully closed because his head is inside and the discovery of his body is um fascinating but the recounting of the discovery of the body in a shrink session with hal is incredible emotionally incredible i mean when you read that um i think david foster wallace really struggled with emotion in literature uh he would read stuff feel moved and want to do it but then the kind of literature he loved like Pynchon he would say he wasn't moved and he kind of it was a puzzle he got it and he enjoyed that there was such pleasure in getting stuff out of Gaddis another writer he loved um, but you know like anybody who loves literature there was a recognition that what really gets to a person is the emotion and i think that scene in the shrinks 
office about the discovery of James's uh, suicide and the body is uh, is just terrific. Um, so Hal is considered by many to be the David Foster Wallace stand-in. Uh, he's obsessed with grammar, obsessed with fitting in with his fellow um, tennis team members. Um, he, in his pursuit, especially of perfectionism and maleness, the the, the juvenile uh, banter, the the horseplay, I, I I couldn't get into at first, but then I I just found it to be um, very cute, if I can put it that. I, I think some people find it to be just rip roaringly hilarious. Um, and this plot line has the longest doses of realism. There, there's a lot of like relationship stuff between himself, Hal, and his uh, between Hal and his mother, Avril, who, after uh, Hal's father's death, shacks up with Avril's adopted brother, Charles. Obvious parallels to Hamlet, uh, Hamlet's mother and his uncle. Um, and the kids play tennis. Uh, they spray paint uh, lemon pledge on their skin as sunscreen. A lot of like over the top stuff, which I, mean, I don't know. I don't know goes on in tennis academies. But of course, David Foster Wallace was uh, briefly, I understand it, a junior, regionally ranked tennis player, um, and quite good. And um, he, of course, as many of you know, was neurotic and suffered from anxiety and also excessive sweating and had taken to carrying his tennis racket even when he was not playing tennis or coming back from tennis and a towel to hide his profuse sweating. Um, so tennis is, is very much an escape for these these boys who are constantly being pride and assessed and their bodies and their brains and the way they play tennis uh, but the camaraderie between among the boys is a, is a real escape and it was for Dave Foster Wallace um, so the, the this tennis academy these sections I would say are quite relaxing for me uh, the Enfield Tennis Academy the ETA and <clears throat> Dave Foster Wallace pulls out all the stops. I mean, the the ETA campus is laid out as a cardioid, which is uh, a plane curve traced by a point on a perimeter of a circle that is rolling around a fixed circle of the same radius. Basically, it's a heart-like form. Uh, it's like kind of the cross-section of a round apple without the stalk. And... In this book, you get math. Uh, I'll just tell you guys up front. There's some math. There's some formulas. There's a game they play, which um, sort of like an intercontinental ballistic mus missile war, war games game on a tennis court where every tennis ball is a nuclear warhead. Uh, and that is a very funny scene where the game goes awry. Um, but, you know... I, I have met people who who like this plot line the best. Um, now the third plot line is the one I prefer. I I I love the most. It's a halfway house in Boston, where the residents live 
after they've served their AA and NA and all the different A's, and they've reached rock bottom. Now they're living in halfway houses, and we follow their lives, especially this one figure, Don Gately. Um, and many of these people have turned to substance abuse out of poverty or because they were sexually abused. But hanging around in the background is this idea that they've sort of been overdosed by consumerism and that substance abuse and TV are sort of interestingly related. Now, David Foster Wallace was a notorious TV watcher. I, I just want to read you something from this interesting hybrid memoir by David Lipsky. I think I mentioned this also in the prior podcast. Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. So, uh, the interview goes, you've watched a lot of TV. What's the most TV you ever watched? And David Foster Wallace goes, in a sitting? I remember watching the entire Jerry Lewis telethon one time, but that was sort of just to see whether I could do it. How old were you then? Interview asked. Uh, 15, 16 years old. Could you? Yeah, I watched the entire thing. How did you manage that if you had this restriction on your TV and you had your homework to do? Well, I didn't have that when I was 15, 16. That, that was when I was a very small child, the restriction. At some point, particularly, both my sister Amy and I, once we got, um, we were in school and getting great, good grades, my parents figured out finally that we could get all our homework done, function as humans, be on athletic teams, and still watch what seemed to them to be just absolutely mind-crushing amounts of TV. They really relaxed about it. Um, and so I, I was kind of impressed, but also really surprised to hear someone talk as he has in interviews about how he, he says childhood, there actually is a lot of time in childhood that you, you, you have so much time to do stuff. And you can watch a lot of TV and video games as long as you're, as he calls it, functioning. Um, so this third plot line, The Halfway House, I, I think it's really the heart of the novel. And it's how I fell in love with the book. And it doesn't appear until about, I think, page 300 or 400. Um, and it's where you meet, you know, hundreds of different side characters that are depressed, were institutionalized, and then these people find others who are worse off, morally repugnant, ethically lost, lost in every possible way, um, and inarticulate. And um, Gately becomes almost like the voice and the <laughs> the mediator which is just shocking once you get to see what Gately's like. And um, there, there's a lot of how to redeem yourself, how to get away from consumerism. Um, and you, you st these mantras and sayings start to pop up. And uh, again, it's this delicate balance of being 
absolutely serious about this being the key to life at the same time, just how funny it is uh, that y- you have these little mantras that seem to work, as David Foster Wallace says. He says, I don't understand how, but they just seem to work. Um, and there there are really great little things like, you know, Gately thought of Boston AA as a box of Betty Crocker cake mix. Didn't matter one fuckola whether Gately like believed the cake would result. All right, let me actually let me read you the the, the entire. It, it's it's just too cute. Um, he's holding a box of Betty Crocker cake mix, which represented Boston AA. The box came with directions on the side any eight-year-old could read. Gately said he was waiting for the mention of some kind of damn insect inside the cake mix. Gene M said all Gately had to do was for fuck's sake give himself a break and relax and for once shut up and just follow the directions on the side of the fucking box. It didn't matter one focola whether Gately like believed the cake would result or whether he understood the like fucking baking chemistry of how a cake would result. If he just followed the motherfucking directions and had sense enough to get help from slightly more experienced bakers to keep from fucking the directions up if he got confused somehow. But basically... The point was, if he just followed the childish directions, a cake would result. He'd have his cake. Um, and, you know, yeah, I just, I, I don't want to give too much away about Gately. Um, but th- there was a real Gately. And um, David Foster Wallace spent hundreds of hours in AA. He also was in AA and um, NA. So... It, there's just so much that it, you sink into in this world uh and it's 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 unlike anything you'll read um because i think there's there's some memoir hidden in there there's some uh, autobiography and then th- there's obviously a lot of modernist wordplay there's um little portraits commentary on america um but it all holds together, and it's so much fun. So, they, you know, like I was saying before, there are lots of keys to Dave Foster Wallace's entire work in Infinite Jest. Um, and there, there's this exchange where between the, the quadruple agent, Remy Mareth, Mareth and Hugh Steepley, um, Marath says, are we not all of us fanatics? I say what you of the USA only pretend you do not know. Attachments are of great seriousness. Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. What you wish to sing of as tragic love is an attachment not carefully chosen. What you wish... Die for one person? This is craziness. He's talking about Jesus or or a leader. Uh, persons change, leave, die, become ill. You, they leave, lie, go mad, have sickness, betray you, die. Your nation outlives you. A cause outlives you. Um, and so it shifts very quickly 
from this kind of goofiness about you know your 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 bra is coming undone, you're 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 looking good, and you're looking better and better, cross dressed, uh, and then this idea that well once my wife dies, you know what where is meaning for me, you know because I've I've been trying to save her life, once you know this once we die where is there meaning for this country what happens um so why don't we pause here and when we come back we'll kind of just look at infinite jest perhaps you know consider it a deeper dive for those who've read it and if you haven't read it you know feel free to just listen in um there really are no uh spoilers plot spoilers in the in this traditional sense Hey, listeners, I'm back. Um, Now, for those who have read the book, I wanted to go over in this segment some of the things I just absolutely loved and you probably love too. And if you haven't read read the book, you'll look forward to these moments, um, these themes. So the first thing is this halfway house, um, the in-it house drug and alcohol recovery house. Now, if the Tennis Academy setting is where you have family and um, kind of quasi-sibling relationships. Uh, this halfway house is where you have incredibly tight uh, quasi-family relationships. And as Dave Foster Wallace said, nobody is as gregarious as somebody who has recently stopped using drugs. Um, it's also the the setting for a lot of my kind of standard issue long David Foster Wallace scenes. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, Dan Gately, Don Gately is kind of the the focus in all these scenes, and he uh, is is a lug. He hasn't had the best education. He hasn't had the best life. He's now at this halfway house, and we we really spend a lot of time inside his head, which is very very funny and sad. Um, he says. The process of what got you to AA. The process is a neat reverse of what brought you down and in here. And in here is, uh, in is capitalized. He does this thing, DFW, where he starts capitalizing words that, um, first he likens that the signs and mantras that are hanging around the halfway house, uh, you have all these kind of mantras jabbing you in the eye. Um, so in in the writing in Infinite Jest, a number of things are, are capitalized. Substance, substances start out being so magically great, so much the interior jigsaws, missing puzzle piece, 
that at the start, you just know deep in your gut that they'll never let you down. You just know it, but they do. And then this goofy slapdash anarchic system of low rent gatherings and corny slogans and saccharine grins and hideous coffee at AA is so lame. You just know there's no way it could ever possibly work except for the utterest, uh, utterest morons. And then Gately seems to find out AA turns out to be the very loyal friend he thought he'd had and then lost when you came in. And so you hang in and stay sober and straight. And out of sheer hand burn on hot stove terror, you heed the improbable sounding warnings not to stop pounding out the nightly meetings even after the substance cravings have left. And you feel like you've got a grip on the thing at last and now can go it alone. You heed the improbable warnings because by now you have no faith in your own sense of what's really improbable and what isn't, since AA seems improbably enough to be working. And then further down, Gately says, "Things Things seem to get progressively somehow better inside for a while, then worse, then even better, then for a while worse in a way that's still somehow better, realer. You feel weirdly unblinded, which is good, even though a lot of things you now see about yourself and how you've lived are horrible to have to see. Um, and he, he really gets into, you know, the repetition of AA and, you know, how it really works. And the old timers who are there, the crocodiles, who are hilarious, they, they kind of warn uh, the young abusers of the life out there capital O, capital T, that, you know, it just isn't safe. It's 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 hard to do it alone. Um and and Gately goes through this tortured logic of why he wants to do it and how he's gonna do it. Um he says uh his own experiences term for the disease is the spider. You have to starve the spider. You have to surrender your will. This is why most people will come in and hang in only after their own entangled will has just about killed them. You have to want to surrender your will to people who know how to starve the spider. You have to want to take the suggestions, want to abide by the traditions of anonymity, humility, surrender to the group conscience. If you don't obey, nobody will kick you out. They won't have to. You'll end up kicking yourself out if you steer by your own sick will. It isn't like the group makes them do it, come to AA. It's more like that the only people who end up able to hang in for a serious time in AA are the ones who willingly try to be these things. Um, I think, you know, regardless of your own personal history, the the kind of self-control we all pride ourselves in <clears throat> in our day-to-day lives and being able to resist temptation or stagnation and just time wasting if if you know if you're super efficient and have no other problems um it, 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 these sections that talk about control and happiness when you've hit rock bottom are incredibly moving um and Gately is very funny too. I, I 
I don't have enough time to highlight, and nor do I want to um, kind of tip off some of these gately moments, and I think it's just fun to experience them. Um, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about is the, you know, the views of consumerism and mass entertainment. Um, and now, much has been made of David Foster Wallace's predictive powers that this book, you know, envisioned the birth of Netflix. In the novel, it's called Interlace. It's the streaming service. You can pay for things whenever you want to watch something. And tied into this is this tape, The Infinite Jest, that will, you know, you can't get your you can't take your eyes off of it, so you end up dying if you watch it. And um, to a lesser extent, people who don't have access to the Infinite Jest um, watch TV, and there there are these hilarious scenes where adults have um, rigged their chairs with dinner trays, like in you know a, a geriatric home or institution, where you can eat your meal while watching y your streaming video. Um, and, uh, you know, like I was saying before, David Foster Wallace, who loved TV and love kind of crappy movies and crappy magazines, loved reading Cosmo, um, he, he was fully aware that entertainment was, could be deadening, but it was hard to escape it. He, he said that the main job of entertainment is to separate your cash from you. Um, so humor for him was very much, uh, a, a device, uh, protection against entertainment, but he, he didn't really have a solution for it. Not that there is a solution for entertainment, but, um, it's just throughout this novel, the idea of consumerism in an interesting way. I mean, obviously, you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, okay, you, you don't want to be a mindless consumer you want to be thoughtful about what you consume whether it's organic food or you know um products that are handmade and made by the right people and haven't hurt the environment and and of, of course there there are so many layers of this kind of the right consumerism um but this the the, the novel really touches upon different uh, levels that were already starting to happen in the late 90s and certainly are now clearly evident, you know, with FedEx Stadium and the naming rights of everything. And so in Infinite Jest, each of the years, the numerical Roman calendar years have been sold by um, the the world governments. So there's the you know year of the trial size Dove Bar and year of Glad garbage bags, um, and most of the novel takes place in the year of the Depend adult undergarment. Um, and I mean, interestingly, David Foster Wallace's working title for Infinite Jest along the way was a failed entertainment. So. The, his mind moved so much in so many directions that he wanted to get it all down. And apparently um, some like 300 pages were edited out. Um, and it was a real kind of friendly, bitter fight with his editor. Uh, his editor would make 
<laughs> like 100 corrections and David Foster Wallace would take two. And then the editor would make 60 corrections and David Foster Wallace would make three. I mean, it was just such a back and forth. And um, I think of that when I reread parts of The Pale King, which I love, and other parts that I think are a bit unreadable, that it is so hard to have perspective on your writing, especially, especially maximalist writing like Infinite Jest, I think in a way, um, Raymond Carver or Hemingway, you, you can scrutinize a short story or a scene that they write and think, okay, now I can revisit this. But so much of Infinite Jest is the momentum. And some of the passages I've read, you can hear that I'm only giving you a, a glimpse of it. If you can imagine reading, you know, a 50-page conversation, a 30-page description of someone waiting for their drug dealer to arrive and staring at the blinds and adjusting the blinds and following the path of a housefly who is weaving in and out of the holes by the blinds when the blinds are not fully retracted i mean it it's uh it's f funny in such a strange way and it's fun um when I was reading Infinite Jest, I would come home and know that if I just kept reading, I would be in his world. Um, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with just deciding, hey, I don't like this scene where the younger brother, Mario, who has a deformity and has a camera mounted to his head, you know, and is like photographing uh, scenes at the Tennis Academy for his brochure that, you know, I, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not enjoying it that much. I've been skimming or reading through that very quickly. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, what I'm getting to is that his voice. His voice was was incredibly original. Uh, and it was very direct. It was, he, for as smart as he was, he often wrote in very plain English and repetitive English um, that reminds me of Beckett. Um, the the whole I can't go on, I must go on sort of writing. Um, and uh, in, in that memoir slash interview book, the Lipsky book I mentioned earlier, uh, <clears throat> the, the, there's a nice little moment between the two of them when Lipsky goes, um, well, he quotes David Foster Wallace back to him. And then he says, what I love in your piece is getting the quote, I love people's dialogue rhythms. So he's quoting David Foster Wallace back to him, uh, an essay he wrote. And David Foster Wallace says, but you know, David, that writing down something that someone says out loud is not, the ma not a matter of transcribing because written stuff said out loud on the page doesn't look said out loud it just looks crazy and you you get the the subtlety and sensitivity of the way uh david foster wallace's mind worked that he 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 loved it when he got you he got, got what he was what he was talking about he loved that and his connection to people was constantly, he was searching for that next little connection. Um, uh, 
and he when he came across something that someone said to him spoke to him he would trumpet it from the from to, to, to every corner i mean he the cultural critic lewis hyde uh, who writes a, a lot about imagination and creativity said that irony only has emergency use um and that became something of a a thesis for Dave Foster Wallace in, in the way he lived his life and the way he wrote that, you know, after the fireworks of sarcasm and irony, um, you know, what remains? What what are we trying to get to? Um, I think there's such a faith in friendships that that also spoke to him, that irony, you know, had a way of pushing people away. Um and you know he, he everything was about people to him you know the humor he had was about pushing people away when you wanted to be alone and also using it to gain uh friendships like there, there's a scene in infinite jest at an aa meeting and this guy who works at the complaint department at filene's department store um sort of makes this revelation he says that he, he can't bear to face customers because his hangovers he feels awful what i did finally jesus i don't know where i got such a stupid idea from i bought this hammer in from home and brought it in and kept it right there under my desk on the floor and when somebody knocked on the door i just i sort of dive onto the floor and crawl under the desk and grab up the hammer and I'd start in to pounding at the leg of the desk real hard, like wakata wakata, like I was fixing something down there. And if they opened the door finally and came in anyhow, or came in to bitch about me not opening the door, I'd just stay out of sight under their pounding away like hell. And I'd yell out, I was going to be a moment, just a moment, emergency repairs, be with them momentarily. I guess you can guess how all that pounding felt, you know, under there. What with the big head I've had every morning hung over. I'd hide under there and pound and pound with the hammer till they finally gave up and went away. And I'd watch from under the desk and tell when they finally went away from I could see their feet from under the desk. Um, there's, there's so much to discuss, but I, I think, you know, I have to talk about the footnotes because... I had a love-hate relationship with the footnotes. Uh, some of the footnotes have their own footnotes. And it, there were times when the last thing I wanted to do was read the footnotes in the back. Uh, or, you know, to, wishing the footnotes were at the bottom of the page. But in the end, I, I actually I love the footnotes. I think... Uh, one of the footnotes I highly recommend is there's a discography, there's a filmography of the dad, James Akendenza. He, he, of all the films he's ever made, um, and it's very, very funny. All the different mediums he's used, the actors, um, and there are little clues in the footnotes. I think, you know, I didn't want to spend too much time digging in the footnotes, but 
people have said there there are hints as to the timeline because obviously if each year is named after a product it's uh kind of hard to figure out what came before what i mean you can kind of track the age of the brothers hal orin and mario but uh there are clues in the timeline in the footnotes there are characters in the footnotes that show up in earlier footnotes that you later encounter in the book itself the body itself um like the pea goat the prettiest girl of all time becomes uh a, a famous dj um so but yeah let me go through some of the my my favorite footnotes uh i think footnote 90 which is even more backstory about gately and in the aa um and i think the dialogue that david foster wallace does is is just perfect whenever he does gately's voice um they're short footnotes that are funny footnote 137 uh they're long footnotes like 145 so i mean if if you know what found art is uh found objects sorry and art you know you you find an object you put it in a different context and it becomes art well <clears throat> footnote 145 is about found what they call found drama and uh, Div Foster Wallace does this technique. He's done this in other short stories where it's a Q&A, but you only get the answer. I think there's a short story uh, I love in uh, brief interviews with hideous men where you get just the answers. Um, and it's very, very funny. Obviously, you can imagine the comic effect. I, I, I don't think David Foster Wallace came up with this little riff. I, I I feel like it's been around for a while. Um, but anyway, so footnote 145, there's an interviewer interviewing uh, Oren in Candenza, the, the guy who becomes a punter, and uh, about his family, his upbringing. And he says, uh, he's asking about his dad's early attempts at art. Um <clears throat> And they used to call the dad the mad, the mad stork. So, and he says that the dad had this thing he created called found drama. And the interviewer, you just get a question, you get a cue and no question. So you have to imagine the question. So here's the answer. No, see, there weren't any real cartridges or pieces of found drama. That was the joke. All it was was you and a couple of cronies got out a Metro Boston phone book and tore the white pages page out, of, out at random and thumbtacked it to the wall. And then the stork, my dad, would throw a dart at it from across the room, at the page. And the name it hit became the subject of the found drama. And whatever happens to the protagonist with the name you hit with the dart for like the next hour and a half is the drama. And when the hour and a half is up, you go out and have drinks with critics who chortlingly congratulate you on the ultimate in neorealism. And then you get the question, right? The question is blank. The answer. Uh, you do whatever you want during the drama. You're not there. Nobody knows the name in the phone book's doing. What the, Nobody knows what the name in the phone book's doing. And then you get the question, and then you get the answer. 
The joke's theory was that there's no audience and no director and no stage or set because the mad stork and his cronies argued in reality there are none of these things and the protagonist doesn't know he's the protagonist in the found drama because in reality nobody thinks they're in any sort of drama. And then you get the question and then the answer, well, almost nobody. That's a very good point. Almost nobody. I'm going to take a chance and just tell you I'm a little bit intimidated here. And so... Um, there are all these great little footnotes like that. Uh, and then my favorite footnote, though, is 304. And I kind of love it because I almost gave up during it. I It was driving me crazy. It's one of the longest footnotes. Um, and I was kind of skimming it, afraid that I'd miss something. And then I almost did miss something. But I kept at it. And I think it's just worth you know it's sort of like this litmus test of whether to keep reading the novel so i i just if you read it if you haven't read it read footnote 304 make sure you do if you have read it reread it today it's it's so funny um and uh, you know, there, there's there's all these side characters that I would love to go into that I don't have time. Um, it, the, you know, there there are these great great riffs on suicide. Uh, Kate Gompert, who's in a, in a mental institution, um, who is being kept under suicide watch and engages the her shrinking these long convoluted conversations about suicide. Um, there are th- these suicides by truck drivers who are tired of driving all night and want to commit, you know, want to end their lives. Um, and it, it just, it starts to layer upon layer. It starts to form these layers like, you know, like the Earth's mantle. I mean, you, you really start to, things start to click about, you know, his views on entertainment and depression and friendship and family. Um, it's just one of these books that you could read numerous times. I've, I've met people who've read it four or five times. Um, and I myself am in the middle of my second read. But it, it 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 is, you know, a difficult book. I think it's not something that someone told me that you really need to not have a job to read it, which is just a terrible recommendation for any book. But I, I know what they're getting at, which is that, you know, you you need to not feel like I'm gonna read for twenty minutes and get something just polished out of it, the way you read a short story. Um, so I think you have to stick at it like anything rewarding. Um, and there were many times when Dave Foster Wallace wanted to give up writing it. Um, he almost gave up writing, you know, the difficulty of keeping this together. Uh, but I, I just love the book and I hope you will too. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this special episode of the History of Literature. I enjoyed that one. I took a little break. 
I'd like to say I spent the week on the beach while Mike did all the work, but the truth was that, thanks to this quarantine, I spent the time in the basement anyway. Ah, well, it was still nice to take a breather. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for helping out with such an interesting topic. We'll be back on Thursday with some more Edgar Allan Poe. We're still in our theme month, Thursday theme of EAP. And we'll have some more from Mike coming up. We'll have a couple of drafts in the works. So check your favorite podcasting app and make sure you've subscribed because you won't want to miss those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.